Hello, beloved survivors. My name is Autumn Brown, and this is How to Survive the End of the World, a podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. How to find some water when it's basically all gone. Let's see. Well, I don't know that it would be all gone. It's more about making sure that you have access to the water that's there, you know? The other voice you are hearing is my eldest child, Finn. We've been recording our conversations about apocalypse survival. And in this one, we discussed how one of the most important aspects of survival planning is cultivating food. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you would eventually have to start growing food. Yeah. That's really important. And you'd have to be able to figure out a way to access water consistently like which looks different in a city versus in the country like you remember when we lived out in the country we had our own well indeed almost every scenario of systemic collapse involves a major question about how we will sustainably feed ourselves and our communities in a post-industrial context for a visionary approach to this question rooted in recovering our ancestral traditions I turned to one of the co-founders of Soul Fire Farm. Leah Penniman is a black Creole educator, a farmer, an author, and a food justice activist based on Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York. She is the author of Farming While Black, and she co-founded Soul Fire in 2010 with the mission to end racism in the food system and reclaim our ancestral connection to land. The illustrious team at Soul Fire facilitates powerful food sovereignty programs, including farmer training for black and brown people, a subsidized farm food distribution program for communities living under food apartheid, and domestic and international organizing toward equity in the food system. In my conversation with Leah, we talk about a future in which farmers guide our survival and our land is cared for with the dignity and love it deserves. This interview ranges from the political power of farming to the science of land rehabilitation. And Leah offers some tips on how you can start growing your own food wherever you are. It is uh, an incredible blessing to have you on the show. Um, And especially to have you on the show as a part of this series of conversations that we're having about um, the the hard skills of apocalypse survival. And... um, and of course, I, I think especially given the political moment that we are in, the global pandemic moment that we are in, there's a lot of folks who are experiencing um, fear and scarcity, particularly around food. Um, and I, I feel very blessed that we get to have you and we get to have Soul Fire on the farm to talk about the political work that you all have been doing around food access and land sovereignty, um, because it seems to me that farmers are going to guide us through this moment. Um, And so we get to have a taste of that guidance right now. Um, So before we get into um, some of the deeper questions, I was wondering if you could give us a little background introduction to Soul Fire Farm. both in terms of like Soulfire Farm as like a visionary political project, um, but also Soulfire Farm as a farm. Like, what do you grow? How many people work there? 
how does how does the farm operate and maybe you could say a little bit too about the conditions that you all are operating under right now absolutely yeah and thanks for the low-key pressure too to save the world you know I was actually talking to uh, one of my spiritual (laughs) teachers whose name is uh, Baba Wande Abimbola he's a Yoruba elder and just profound, uh, wise soul. And and we spoke the other day and he said, you know, farmers are the last hope for humankind. <laughs> it's, like, it's not a game. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Right. <laughs> um, so to answer your question, so Soulfire Farm is, let's say 10 years old. Um, uh, we opened in 2010. There's seven of us who work here and we are a black indigenous people of color centered training farm. Uh, we're on 80 acres of Mohican territory in upstate New York. And, you know, as you said, a lot of our work is super practical on the ground. I mean, we grow vegetables, medicines, uh, we raise animals, mushrooms, honeybees, and we provide that food um, to the folks who need it most in our community. Uh, and that is both glamorous and mundane all at the same time. It's like getting mm-hmm. out there and digging a row and planting seeds and washing and harvesting and distributing. Um, as a training farm, we welcome a couple thousand people to the land every single year um, who wow. are what we call the returning generation of farmers. These are black and brown folks whose grandparents, great grandparents uh, fled the oppression you know, of the red clays of Georgia, the, the sharecropping, the tenant farming, the legacy of slavery, and who are now wanting to return to that noble legacy, agrarian legacy um, that is our birthright. And so we have these week-long courses where people come live and learn on the farm. And then uh, sort of zooming out, we're organizers. So we collaborate regionally and nationally on reparations and rematriation work around uh, land and resources for farmers and food system folks. And that Mm -hmm. looks like, you know, a regional land trust that we help coordinate um, that's doing land return. It looks like political campaigns uh, with the Heal Food Alliance and National Black Food and Justice Alliance. Um, It looks like a lot of public education, you know, writing, speaking, mobilizing people um, to do right by those who we're now realizing are the essential workers of society who are the people who produce our food. So that's Mm -hmm. us in a nutshell. Um, I do want to name the team. Uh, Yes, please do. uh, (laughs) If only we had an applause track that could play after each person's name. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Because sometimes, you know, we get confused and we still think like Martin Luther King was a civil rights movement. You know, everything is a team. So um, Larissa Jacobson is one of the co-directors and um, takes care of partnerships and solidarity work. Uh, Jonah Jonah Vitelli-Wolf, my partner, is a co-director and does like builds everything and fixes it, which is a lot of work here. Uh, Justin Butts uh, takes care of the livestock. Naima Peniman coordinates all the programs together with Kiani Conley-Wilson. And Cheryl Wilby holds down all the administration and office stuff and basically everything would fall apart without her. So um, and then we have like (laughs) so many volunteers and contractors who are part of the team, too. Beautiful. Well, we are all around the world so grateful that this team exists. Um, And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about when you say that with all of the all of the um, work that you're doing around like uh, mushroom production, honey, livestock, plant medicine, vegetables, when you say that you are your orientation is to get all of those products, farming products into the hands of people who need it most. What are the actual um, processes that you're using to make that happen in upstate New York? 
Absolutely. So we're actually in a little bit of a transition right now in terms of our distribution, which preceded this crisis, um, but is also informed by this crisis. So for the past mm-hmm. nine years, we've used a uh, doorstep delivery CSA model. Um, so this actually comes out of the work historically of black farmers, uh, namely Booker T. Watley at Tuskegee University, who realized that, you know, having middle, like a middleman, a wholesaler is not good for the consumer or the farmer, and that farmers should be like interacting directly with community members. And he came up with what he called this clientele membership club, which is like folks actually join and become members of a farm. And then every week they get a box. Um, that movement has, or that trend, I guess, has really taken off often without crediting its origin of, of coming out of the black farming community. Yeah. I just so- want to say like, to be totally honest, I didn't know that that was the origin of the CSA model. Right? <laughs> and I used to run a food justice organization. <laughs> word that's embarrassing uh, yeah you i mean and we part. know how appropriation <laughs> works like pretty much everything maybe let's just say at least 90 percent of the dope sustainable farming knowledge that we have and like you know cooperative economics knowledge comes out of indigenous black brown communities and often isn't credited so that's like a whole other conversation mm. and i wonder about the the thinking about your training process with farmers how you navigate um the way generational trauma Mm -hmm. shows up when folks are in the process of returning to land I ask because I know for myself when I first started gardening um I I really really struggled emotionally with the activity of gardening And I remember many, many days where I would just be reduced to tears within, you know, 30 to 45 minutes of like working in Mm. my garden. And um, oftentimes it was like I I would feel so frustrated by the fact that I didn't um, already know how to do a particular (laughs) activity. Um, But over time, I I started to make the connection that part of what was happening part of what was coming up inside of me was um, the fact that like my relationship to land is um, distorted, Mm -hmm. right? That there's like some distortion, disconnection. There is a trauma that is like um, inhibiting my ability to relate to the land in a healthy way and to even be able to really notice what's happening in my garden Um, and I'm wondering if that, if you've seen that come up for people who are coming to your land to learn farming, um, or have you heard stories like that come up for people who are interested in growing food and are trying to figure out their way there? Like, how do you navigate the emotional content of what people are dealing with? That is so real, sibling. I mean, I would say almost everybody, (laughs) everybody who comes here is coming with um, that inherited trauma. Um, My friend, Chris Bolden Newsom, who is a farmer in Philly, black farmer in Philly. (gasps) I love Chris. Chris. (laughs) He put it so well. He was like, the lands was the scene of the crime. Right. The land was the scene of the right, crime. Exactly. And but I would add she was not the criminal. Right. The land is actually probably the source of, of strength and survival in many ways for our people, because in West African cosmology. Right. We believe the land is actually alive. Like she's an Orisha. She is giving us strength. So all of that mm-hmm. o- oppression, 
that has taken place and continues to take place on land, the slavery, the sharecropping, the tenant farming, the uh, lynchings and for- forced expulsions, the farm worker oppression through H2A and Bracero, all that stuff, right? We know that is inherited. We know that we carry that in our epigenetics. There's been you know, studies of grandchildren of Holocaust survivors and the way that they actually physiologically carry that trauma. So when folks right. come out to the land, you know, even young, young ones, you know, like a, a black child, 12, 13 years old, is like, y'all slaves, y'all stupid, you know, <laughs> like, <what's this? laughs> like, that's the association. That's the association. Right. It is. It is. And uh, so I think two things about it. One thing is that because I believe many of us believe that the earth is actually a healing force, that once we have an opportunity to be on the land on our own terms, she's going to just start composting that trauma. There's not actually a lot we have to do. We just be on the land Mm. together in our way, singing our songs, telling our stories, Mm -hmm. planting our crops, you know, learn eating the foods that come from the land. And bit by bit, that composting just starts to happen which is definitely oh, I one love that truth. metaphor. I think another part of the healing, though, is reclaiming our narrative. For me, when I got started farming, I definitely <laughs> wondered time and again if I was a traitor to my people and if I should put my strong back and intelligent mind to something more appropriate, like, you know, addressing the housing crisis or education discrimination, something like that. And like a white collar job. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like something more relevant to black people, I guess is what I meant. Um, uh, so why I say traitor to my people, like would my grandfather who grandparents who ran away from this roll over in their graves if they saw me uh-huh, stooping and, uh-huh. and be like, why aren't you, you know, working on the real issues? So something that's been important for me in reconciling that decision has been to come to understand that our relationship to land is not circumscribed by the past few hundred years of land-based oppression. Like I can now trace Mm. back to Cleopatra as the first documented origin of composting, right? I can trace back to the Ovambo people as the first documented case of doing raised bed agriculture, right? I can trace back to Dr. George Washington Carver as the father of organic agriculture and really see the Mm. role of like my people and my folks on their own terms, right? Contributing to feeding the world. And that has been important for me to, as a process of reclamation of the dignity of the work, right? So Mm. I think that's part of the healing too. Mm, Beautiful. Wow, that is, um, I just, I feel something like just, just even in my body being kind of like cleansed or pushed out just by hearing you, um, name our ancestors in that way mm-hmm. so Ashe. thank you we will be back with more of my conversation with leah in a moment but first we want to share a listener's response to our question how are you maintaining connection in the time of covid hi my name is claire and i live in portland oregon um i have been getting super creative about ways to connect and have intimacy. Um, In this time, I have a traumatic brain injury and um, have had some more serious symptoms in the last couple weeks, which means that I can't look at screens much at all, the way that most of us are connecting. So, 
one of the things I'm finding that actually creates the most connection is asking for support. So um, today, rather than going online and trying to order uh, this thing that I really needed for some cannabis products, I called the company and asked if they could take my order over the phone. And they said, yes, sure. And they also gave me the product for free. Um, and just in general, uh, calling somebody and saying, hey, um, I'm not able to get my groceries right now, or I'm not able to do whatever, whatever. It's like the most vulnerable, uh, scary, um, big thing with lots of feelings that come up, including lots of trepidation and some shame. And um, what I find more often than not with the people that I have chosen in my community is that the answer is uh, usually a yes or let me see another way I can help if I can't do it or um, specifically a yes with a lot of enthusiasm. Thanks for creating this part of the podcast. This is really nourishing to hear other people's voices. Listeners, we love hearing from you, and it's not too late to share your stories. What are your strategies for maintaining intimacy and connection in the time of social distancing? Record yourself using the voice memo or voice recorder app on your phone and email it to howtosurvivepod at gmail.com and we might feature it in a future episode. Now back to my conversation with Leah. In thinking about the that idea of like the the land will actually compost that trauma for us and that there's a way that the land itself has the power to rehabilitate us. I've also been thinking about that you know we have a role in rehabilitating the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that a significant part of the work that you all have been doing has been, or it sounds like, um, from what I've read on your site that, um, there's been a component of the work that's been about rehabilitating land. Um, and I was wondering if you could, um, kind of take us there a little bit thinking about, you know, the, the, the spirit and science of, land rehabilitation and the way that you've drawn on ancestral and indigenous um, wisdom as a part of the process of rehabilitating the land. Um, And it might be good for the sake of our listeners, because so many of the folks who are listening to this show are not folks who are like, are necessarily in relationship to land. Maybe they want to be, but wouldn't necessarily know a lot about what happens to the land under the conditions of Word. industrial farming. Yep. And so it might be helpful to kind of take us like zoom out a little bit. Like what is, what is topsoil and what happens to, <laughs> <laughs> what happens to the earth right. under the conditions of industrial farming practices? And then what are some of the ways that you all have leveraged 
both scientific process, ancestral knowledge, indigenous indigenous knowledge as a way of um, rehabilitating the land and helping it become healthy again. I love that you presence paying attention to what's arising in our body because as you ask about healing the lands, I'm like my belly is giddy. I'm just like this is my favorite thing. <laughs> Yay! This is my favorite thing. So I'm going to tell you a, <laughs> an urban story and a rural story so that both okay. semesters. So the urban story about story time with Leah Penniman. <laughs> the urban story about healing the land is that um, so I farmed urban in urban and rural environments for the past 24 years. So this is like my life, life, life. And when mm-hmm. my daughter, Nishima, who's now 17, was a baby, um, we, my partner and I were working in Worcester, Massachusetts, doing urban farming. And of course, like any, you know, earth soil loving parents, we're bringing our child along with us. And she's sitting in the gardens and helping out as much as her little tiny self can. And we take her to her one year appointment and it turns out that this child has lead poisoning, not from our home, (gasps) but from the earth, right? Because until 1984, you know, people were using lead in paints and gasoline and with demolitions, you know, all of this was deposited into the soils, which then became vacant lots, which became parks, which became community gardens, right? And so, of course, we did everything to take care of our baby and also as activists, you know, tried to engage, how do we take care of everyone else's children who are possibly also exposed? Because the city wasn't doing anything about this. They weren't even aware. So I went around with my little DIY soil test situation, sampling soils all around the city. And while the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, sets the safe limit as 400 parts per million of lead, we found levels as high as 11,000 parts per million, (gasps) which is so toxic that it would classify these gardens as super fun sites where you get federal money to, wow. like, you know, completely remove the, the contamination. So the good news was that there's a special flower called the Pelargonium. And this flower, like so many other African crops, was actually braided into like the seeds were braided into the hair of our ancestors before they were forced onto transatlantic slave ships. Our like ancestral great, 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 great grandmothers gathered up their seeds, braided them into their hair as insurance for the future because they believed we would exist, which to me is like a metaphor for all things that I need to be thinking about. Yep. Yep. And it turns out little did they know that this flower, the scented geranium has a superpower, which is that it accumulates lead and other heavy metals into its leaves to cleanse the soil. And we ended up using the Pelargonium all over the city to do a fancy word called phytoremediation. Phyto just means plant remediation, fix it. Right. And, and started to like pull the lead out of soils and rehabilitate. We had a, a youth co-op business called the toxic soil busters um and they got oh contracts with the city and private companies to um do this remediation this is very relevant to us right now because one of the projects that soul fire farm is doing and is really ramping up in the time of the pandemic we call it soul fire in the city where essentially we go and build gardens with and for community members living under food apartheid and this program has mm-hmm. been you know, pretty small, you know, like three to 10 gardens a year, so forth. And this year we have, I don't know, probably 50 signups by today. And we just put it out two days ago because <laughs> people really yep. are realizing yeah, everyone's like, like, I need to know how to do it right now. Exactly. <laughs> like we need to grow food right now. And so we are, you know, my coworker Kiani was out in the greenhouse yesterday trying to plant more seeds <laughs> so that we can get people more yep. plants. Um, 
and we have to, of course, pay attention to the lead in the soil. And and paleargonium is is one tool. Um, I will say, don't try it at home without the full instructions. And I can put in the show notes the full instructions because you can actually make things right, worse. Just making a note before you make them better. Um, <laughs> Using phosphate-rich compost also binds lead. Like any medicine, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so that's that's one story about healing the soil. I think the other one that's important to know, and this is especially for rural folks, is that, you know, when Europeans colonized this continent, within one generation of their farming practices, which involve a lot of tillage, tillage is like turning over the soil, 50% of the carbon in the soil was lost. So what is meant by that and why that matters is that soil is mostly made up of, well, it's made up of like a mineral component and then a living component. The living component has carbon. That's what makes the soil fertile. And when you till the soil, Mm -hmm. all that carbon or much of that carbon is like released into the atmosphere, which causes climate change. And if you actually look at like CO2 graphs in the atmosphere, you can see that the very first human caused rise in this country was when Europeans started messing with the soil in the great plains. Um, 50% of that carbon is gone. And, and we see our work as my coworker, Larissa Jacobson would say, like our sacred work is to call the carbon to call the life back into the soil. And we do that through Mm. indigenous and Afro indigenous methods like cover cropping, which is when you, you know, plant, legumes like beans and peas to help restore that balance in the soil. It's when you stop tilling and instead use heavy mulches to suppress the weeds that you you like you need don't need all up in your crops business, right? It's using things mm-hmm. like raised beds and rotational grazing of livestock and perennials, which are plants that come back year after year instead of having to plant them new every year. And so we've been doing that on our land. And when we first got here in 2006 is when we signed white man's papers, you know, our soil organic matter was between like two and 4%. And now it's between 10 and 12%. So we have restored our soil to pre-colonial levels using our ancestors practices. And if everybody in the whole world did that with their soil, we would take care of almost half of like the CO2 in the atmosphere that needs to be put back um, to stop climate change. Okay. Wow. <laughs> You're like, I'm, I'm just, just saying, saying we need regenerative ag. It's literally that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I and I I just like uh having another like somatic response as you're talking, just like feeling chills going down the back of my neck and my shoulders. Um so thank you for sharing those stories. Um, and I think, you know, also hearing you speak with so much passion and um, clarity about what the work is and what's needed and just recognizing that actually so many of the tools that we need are not only already here, already with us, but have been with us for generations and we carried them with us without even, I mean, the story that you just shared about the seeds being woven into the hair, it's like, um, it's so incredible to know that some of these skills, tools, resources we carried with us, not knowing Mm. when we were going to need them. Um, that, 
many generations, someone predicted that there may be a need for this, you know, um, which means that right now we have skills and tools and seeds that we don't yet know what they're going to be needed for, right? That So there's something there, it feels to me, like there's an invitation to pay attention to the things that we are already holding close to ourselves without necessarily knowing why, because there may be, you know, many generations down the line, a need for that that we can't yet see. Um, but what I hear in your passion and your clarity is also your leadership and the leadership of the the soul fire farm itself and all of the other farmers that you have been learning from and working with and in community with um and you know as we talked about near the top of this recording uh, there's this sense right that farmers are <laughs> the community that's going to guide us through this time right this the pandemic that we're all living through right now is already like fundamentally reshaping our society. And there's something I think about, right? Like noticing that the people that we are looking to inside the pandemic to make the right decisions are not the people who are capable of making the right decisions. Like the people who are in leadership of our government have demonstrated over and over and over again, literally throughout time immemorial that they are not capable of making the right decisions on behalf of community and humans and the earth um but people who care for the earth are actually they have the wisdom to make the right decisions and so I'm just curious to know mm -hmm. how you and the rest of the team at Soulfire and the other farmers that you're in community with like how are you thinking about and understanding your role in this moment and the guidance that you can offer to community for how to move through this moment in a way that moves us actually back towards the land and back towards each other, but with like safety and vision? I mean, to be super honest with you, I don't, it's overwhelming. I won't say I don't know. And, but I, what I want to share with you is that in the weeks and months before this pandemic um, reached us, I was experiencing burnout. I was experiencing disillusionment. I was experiencing like, you know, maybe we're not actually going to win. Like we're not going to fix the climate. We're not going to like big ag is just going to take over. And so all the things I've dedicated my life to, we've dedicated our lives to, we're just frankly on the losing team. Right. So <laughs> those were my, those were really oh, my feelings. And, I, and, I, and I'm putting this out there because I, I don't think That's I'm real. alone. Like when I have those behind the curtains mm -mm. conversations with other activists, other people who sometimes are put up as leaders, you know, and they say, really like I just don't I don't feel always confident that that we're going to to win this and when I say win this I don't mean win over I mean be able to create a society and a world with reverence for human and non-human siblings and for the earth herself and for the things that are most sacred and precious and what's been powerful for me as an individual in light of the this pandemic is to have almost overnight this 
awakening all around me that the things that we've been doing, like you and I and folks in the movement, small scale agriculture, mutual aid, pods of support, right? Like democratized decision making suddenly are seen as relevant and sought after. And like, (laughs) (laughs) and it was like this overnight flip. And so I think I'm still adjusting to maybe this new normal Mm -hmm. and this, I'm confused. So I will say though, Two things. One is to your point about um, farmers and people close to the land having some of the wisdom we need. You know, obviously it's not just farmers, but there are ways that, you know, across politics, across across race, across age, across education, farmers have just been doing localized mutual aid. Like there's a farmer down the street and, you know, he borrows our trailer anytime he needs it and then drops off some honey. And there's Phil down the road who's got the excavator and you know, if your plow breaks, mm-hmm. you know, you can count on Jeannie to come, you know, there's just, it's just happening. And those are the types of things that suddenly right. we realize right. that we can't necessarily rely on these big supply chains and mega corporations. And there's cracks that are, we've always known are in the system, but they're laid bare. And folks are suddenly going, oh, it's actually my neighbors that I need to check in on and support yeah. and be supported by. Yeah. So in that way, I think that's a thing that we have to offer and that we've been you know, for tangibly speaking, like twice a week, we have a national skill share that's led by Black, Indigenous, people of color farmers about our strategies. So every Sunday night at um, 7 p.m. Oh, wow. Eastern time and every Thursday night at 6 p.m. Pacific time, there are these skill shares and we have a couple featured speakers and then an open community share. And that's been a really cool way to start to disseminate these strategies um, to the wider community. It's BIPOC centered, but all the resources are available to anybody. Um, another thing I will say is wow. that, you know, I've told this story of our ancestors making this audacious decision to braid seeds into their hair before being forced into the bowels of slave ships. And, you know, something I always say, but had now really believe (laughs) it's like (laughs) if they could face that right if they could face this kidnapping this uncertainty about their future there was no report backs mind you like people didn't know what was going to happen and decide to save some seed for us believing that they would have descendants believing that, that we would need to inherit this this seed like who the hell am i to give up on my descendants no matter how hard things feel and I've been fortified, like that. My my ancestral grandmothers have been in my dreams braiding seeds, and that has really fortified me um, when I get overwhelmed and and touch despair and and worry to just be like, just keep passing those seeds down. Like that's our duty. Um, yes, yes. Oh, Leah, <laughs> thank you for saying that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um. Yeah, you know, it is interesting to consider how every generation experiences its own sense of the mm-hmm. end and is confronted with a op- like a decision to make about like do I choose to continue moving towards life even if I cannot see any evidence that <laughs> that life that there is life on the other side of this or you know do I give in? And I hear you really, um, yeah, drawing on your ancestors to um, remind yourself to move towards life. Um, okay, so last question for now. 
Um, <laughs> Cause you know, we still do have to do that future sister conversation. We do. All we four do. Of us are and I'm right now I'm making myself um, a little piece of artwork that says move towards life or give in. What do you choose today? Because I think I need that like right in front of my face every day. Yes. <laughs> so thank you for just making that succinct and clear what the options are. Okay, send me a picture of that so that I can print it off and put okay. it above my desk too. Um, <laughs> we can just like hold each other in this moment. Um, but seriously, this conversation is giving me so much life right now because the last few weeks have been so hard. And it's like, and like last night, I definitely like was like lying in bed just sweeping over how hard the last year of my life has been and like how under-resourced I am coming into this moment in time and feeling like I literally can't, I feel like I can't see my way out of hardship right now. Um, and so it's just like, yeah, just hearing your story and being reminded of like, yep. And shit has been so much harder for other people <laughs> at certain points in time. And those people chose life and it's like, right. Let me just like, contextualize right. my own experience like every right single now. one of our um, ancestors chose life <laughs> exactly in some way in or some way right it's like i i think about this all the time right that like yeah like the fact that i am here is evidence of the fact that someone confronted enormous difficulty and still chose to do whatever was possible to survive hmm. um and i can't yeah i feel similarly to you that like my like the way that I honor that is to make the same choice. Um, so thank you. Um, and then, <laughs> oh yeah, last question. So knowing that, um, you know, like you were sharing with, you have 50 signups on your, on Soulfire Yeah, Soulfire in the City. Is that city. what it's called? And shout out to Amani Olugbala. Who Soulfire in the that. City. Make sure, shout her out. <laughs> um, so... Everyone's about to be like trying to figure out how to save seeds and learn how to farm and how to have like a rooftop farm and how to have a this, that thing and a da, 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 da. So I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of advice here at the end of the recording of like um, <clears throat> what what is an initial step that people can take right now that is like manageable and like moves them in the right direction knowing that that step might also be different depending on yes, social location. absolutely <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a story to answer that question so when I was my <laughs> I love your stories <laughs> so my um my family is Haitian on our maternal side and so since the 2010 earthquake we've been doing these volunteer solidarity delegations in Haiti and I I always room with mm. my wonderful womb and soul sister Naima and yes um, we all need to have a double sister date because there's Naima. parallels but anyway so what Naima does so when she first gets to a new place <laughs> is takes out a little glass jar a little piece of cloth on top of it, puts some mung bean seeds or sunflower seeds in the jar, rinses them and sets them by her bedside. And I'm always like, what are you doing, child? She's like, I need to have my garden everywhere I go. I, I go. Like I need to grow sprouts. And the only, like the smallest possible garden is a jar of sprouts. So pretty much anybody could access oh, wow. this. You can literally get some lentils or sunflower seeds or, you know, garbanzos from the store, just the regular bulk aisle, uh, the Goya brand, whatever, right? And and wet them in a jar mm -hmm. and rinse them twice a day and you will have greens growing. 
if you want to move on from that, what? we just started a call-in <laughs> gardening show called Ask a Sista Farmer, S-I-S-T-A, where Black women and non-binary oh farmers um, answer call-in questions every Friday, 4 p.m., Eastern time on Facebook live and on zoom. So you can, uh, we'll put that in the show notes or you can just go on the soul fire farm website and find it, but yeah. you can call in and ask whatever, whatever you need to help with your garden. And we're committed throughout the entire pandemic to keep this going. Um, so that we can spread the knowledge of food sovereignty. That's amazing. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And it sounds like there's, um, I mean, just thinking about all the resources that you've referred to already in the show, and we'll definitely drop these into the show notes, but the, I'm particularly interested in this, in the reparations map and the ways that um, particularly white folks with wealth can contribute to um, um, black and indigenous people and people of color being able to grow food. Um, I mean, especially, it's so interesting this, like inside this moment of pandemic, and all of the focus in the mainstream media on the ways that the economy is reeling <laughs> um, from from I mean, and of course, the economy is right, like in, incredibly um, it's it is impacted. I don't mean to in any way um, dismiss the impact of what's happening on the economy Um and there's something to me, too, about thinking about all of that in the broader context of, like, just the overwhelming wealth mm -hmm. disparity in our country and the fact that, yeah, we have a disrupted economy and we still have a huge percentage of or a small percentage of people in this country holding on to enormous wealth. Um, and there's no discussion or plan for how that gets redistributed. Truth. But... <laughs> At least at this moment, like there is there could at least be an altruistic motivation for redistributing that wealth in a way that sustains all of us in the long term. And so I'm really curious about that um, and definitely want to link in the show notes to the guide that you all created about um, the the what did you call it? The yeah, doorstep? Um, we call it solidarity sharing, uh, um, but I will absolutely solidarity send you the sharing. Link. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Send it all. We'll put it all in the show notes. Um, and just want to um, end by saying like massive gratitude to you, Leah, for your work and your leadership and your passion and your vision and your clarity and your spirit. And um, and just talking to you, I feel like I'm just getting a taste of what it must feel like to work with you and to make home and community with you. And I just feel like um, wow, it was, must be such a beautiful space that you all are creating over there. And I hope I get to visit it someday. Oh, thank you. This has been honestly exactly what I needed right now. It's, um, it's heavy, it's heavy and hard times. And I think we're going to rise through together using these ancient tools. And, um, it's really an honor to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival mini-series of How to Survive the End of the World. 
In our next episode, we feature a breathtaking interview with So and Pinar, the duo that co-created Queer Nature, a decolonial education project that facilitates workshops on survival skills, ecological awareness, and natural crafts, all accessible to queer, trans, Black, and Indigenous people of color. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash end of the world show. And thank you so much to all of those of you who have been donating, who've become new donors. This is a really amazing time to support the podcast because the more of our listeners who are able to give, the more of this content we're able to produce. So lots of gratitude to all of you. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. Come with ease, don't come with ease now.